the last uh, one that we discussed was mind and body and depicted on the dependarizing picture is a boatman paddling a prone passenger now for mind and body as the cause we get the six senses if we have human mind and body we have six senses and that's usually depicted as a house with six window with five windows sorry and a door now the five windows are our five senses and then the door is the sixth one the thinking in the buddhist terminology thinking is the sixth sense and it doesn't um, isn't so strange to us either we do think sometimes that I've had a sixth sense about that and it was a thought now these senses as are depicted there are our windows and doors to the world and being the windows to the world unless one practices diligently and I mean diligently one will continue to think that that's where we get happiness from it is such an insidious obvious and automatic reaction in us that we have to practice for quite a long time until we can actually emotionally make a shift now intellectually we can agree to this quite quickly we can agree to this right now that actually we don't can't rely on the happiness of the senses intellectually that's not very difficult is it but emotionally it is extremely difficult every time we get angry when somebody has said something we have relied on our senses in that case the sense of hearing every time we get infatuated or even just delighted with the looks of somebody we have belief in our senses now that doesn't mean that we cannot like what we see and hear or taste and touch and smell and actually have some enjoyment from that but what it means is that eventually having practiced long enough and seen it over and over again and through personal experience recognize it it means that we no longer expect to be happy through our senses we don't expect to hear only what we like to see only what is beautiful to taste only what is good to smell only that which is nice and to be satisfied with thinking and of course the same with the touch sensation we no longer expect that all of that is going to be exactly the way we want it because we know it can't be but far more than that we no longer expect that this is where our happiness comes from 
And when we no longer expect that, we have attained the first step of freedom. We have made one step into the transcending of the human problem. As long as we believe that through the senses we're going to get it, whatever it is that we're looking for. And actually we can say we're all looking for the same thing. We're looking for happiness. As long as we believe it's going to come through what we see here, taste, touch, smell and think, we're always going to be in trouble. Now the reason why we're going to be in trouble is manifold. The first one is that we have absolutely no jurisdiction over what we particularly, what we see and what we hear. We can manage the taste, the smell is a little difficult, the touch, that's the body sensation, impossible to be, to have complete jurisdiction over that. And the thinking, well, that, every meditator knows, that's got to be attained through long and persevering practice. So we have no jurisdiction over any of that. And to expect that that's going to bring us happiness, although it is nilly-willy and potluck, is in the first place already absurd. It can't do it. It just hasn't got that quality in it. But there's far more to it than that. The main reason why even that which is very pleasing to us and there are many things which are pleasing to the eye and to the ear all of that is very short-lived and it has to be short-lived. If it weren't it would become most unpleasant. Now just imagine for instance, you're very cold and somebody offers you a hot bath. So you get into the bathtub in the hot water and it's really nice, lovely. And you're sitting in there. And then you say to your host, oh, this is lovely in this hot bath, I really like it. And the host says, I've got plenty of hot water. Stay in there, two, three, four, five, six, seven hours makes no difference. You're going to like that? It's going to be most unpleasant. The mind can't handle that. It might even fall asleep because it can't handle that. Well, it's obvious with food, isn't it? If the meal lasts more than 20 minutes, 25, well, let's say 30 at the, at the outer edge, it's going to become most unpleasant for the body. The nicest meal, the nicest taste, taste sensation, the nicest touch sensation has to stop. And because it has to stop, and as long as we believe that that is going to be our happiness, we have to make it happen again. So we have to use our time and our energy and our mental effort to make it come about again.
and again and again and again. And this is what the world's economy runs on. And this is what the population of our planet is doing. With very little let up and with mighty few exceptions. This is not a plea for renunciation of having enjoyment through the senses. It's always misunderstood, particularly by people who are really sincere about their practice. It is a plea for insight. Because once we see that we're spending hours and hours and hours of every day of our lives trying to have pleasant sense contact through the eyes, through the ears, through the taste, through the touch, through the smell and through the thought, and all of it disappears again within moments or minutes, then we will realize that we're wasting our lives. It's a waste of time. The pleasant sense contacts will be ours no matter what we do. There'll always be beautiful sunsets. There'll always be beautiful sunrises. There'll always be beautiful pictures. There'll always be nice sounds birds singing, good music. There will always be someone who says something which is pleasing. There will always be nice thoughts. We'll never be without them. It is part of the human condition, but there will always be the opposite too. We can't make sure. And if we depend on our happiness for the pleasing ones, and spend our time and our energy and our money trying to get them, we'll always be disappointed. Because they will only be, well, let's say 50-50 for ordinary people, 60 of the good ones and 40 of the unpleasant ones for those who have exceptionally good karma, and the other way around for those that have exceptionally bad karma. It's always around 50-50. If you think of a single day, maybe today, and check it out and see what it's like. Now, if one meditates, it can become a totally different situation. But in ordinary life, it's usually like that. Our senses are in our body for survival. They are necessary. We have to see and hear to make survival easy. And millions of years ago, when the human species first arose, they were absolutely essential. We had to hear when an enemy approached. We had to see where the food was to be had. Nowadays, we still have to see whether the traffic will let us pass. So it hasn't changed 
that we need them for survival. We just don't realize it as urgently anymore. But what we have done, because our survival is a little easier these days than it used to be, the wild animals aren't running around the streets trying to eat us up, we have changed our approach to the senses to expecting them to be our pleasure garden, so to say, where we will be able to get what we're looking for. Nobody can. It's always something happens that we don't want, that we are not looking for. And because we expect that, we have disappointment. And because we get disappointment, we're even harder trying to get it. And all of that puts stress and strain on the human psyche and makes people discontented. If you walk along the streets of any big city anywhere in the world, you will find it difficult to see a truly happy face. Most of them are stressed and strained, discontented, because people haven't been shown where they can find the happiness that they're looking for other than through the senses. It is so well advertised everywhere. Just look at the commercials, just look at the billboards, just look at the shop windows, just look at the statement of the advertising agencies. It's so wonderfully well advertised that even though one is highly intelligent and knows it's just for making money, one still falls into the trap. Just getting one more thing or one more person, or a different one, or one more trip, whichever way one looks at it, that's going to do it. It won't. If one has had enough different persons, enough different trips of all descriptions, and enough different things, one must eventually become aware that there is no steadiness of inner joy. It comes and it goes. And the worst of it is the dependency. The dependency on that which we can't make sure. Even if we were to hide ourselves into a cave somewhere in the mountains, we still can't be sure that something won't happen that we won't like. But since we are not hidden in a cave in the mountains somewhere, but are together with other people and other situations, work situations, and all sorts of uh, experiences, we just can't make sure. So our senses are there for survival, and that's what they're good for. But they also bring us enjoyment at times, that's fine. When we stop expecting to get our happiness from our senses, then our enjoyment of the sense input can be pure. The purity arises 
some moment we don't want to keep it and we don't want to repeat it. We just enjoy it right then and there. In fact, the purity of the enjoyment of a sense contact can bring a feeling of otherworldliness. It happens sometimes to people spontaneously. Watching a beautiful sunrise or sunset, which nobody believes they can keep, and which sometimes people forget that they want it again, can bring such a purity of connectedness to that what the eye sees and the feeling and the mind which is connected with all that, that there is a forgetting of self at that moment. And that forgetting of self brings an inner joy, which is then connected sometimes with the idea, it's sunsets that make me happy. I have to be out there and look at them, and then I'll be fine. Absurd, isn't it? But understandable. Because that was a moment of forgetting of self. And therefore, there was a transcending. So one tries to look at as many sunsets as possible. That can happen with a beautiful painting quite easily. The forgetting of self and therefore just having that marvelous feeling that there is something other and by experiencing that, hoping to get it again from the next painting. Not necessarily so, not every painting works that way on one. However, those moments which can be called, if one hasn't experienced anything else, peak experiences, can give rise to a first inkling that there must be more than just sense contact. Those experiences give rise to an inner understanding that we are more than just our senses. And then one may go on the search for something more. There was a saint in the Catholic Church, Saint Bonaventura, who called it the three eyes the eyes of the senses he called the eyes of the flesh then the rational logical and also abstract thinking he called the eyes of the mind and then he called the next one the third eye the eye of the spiritual he didn't mean a spot on the forehead I assure you he just used that as a way of expressing our ability to see outwardly and then also see inwardly. The third dimension, the third dimension, the spirituality, the transcending, all of us have that ability. We've got to get at it. With our ordinary senses, we have an inbuilt 
computer system, we could say. And unless we recognize it, we're not going to stop it because it's on automatic. But we can pull out the plug. It works like this. I already mentioned to you that this tiger that is holding on to that wheel of birth and death, which is the dependent arising and which I'm explaining to you, has a decoration on his head which looks from afar as if it was something beautiful but from near you can see there are five skulls and these five skulls I mentioned to you are the five components of which we consist called the five aggregates just the five components and one of them is the body I have no difficulty in seeing that everybody knows they've got a body and we pay a lot of attention to it as I explained yesterday and we get bothered by it quite a lot but then we have four components of mind and I'll use the discomfort in the sitting position as the example because it's the easiest to understand and you can immediately relate to it the first thing that happens in this inbuilt computer system that we've got is the sense contact. Here we have touch contact when we sit on the pillow. The next thing that happens is feeling. Now the feeling can be one of three kinds. It can be pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. Now we don't have much to do with neutral feelings because first of all we don't notice them not mindful enough and secondly they are not unpleasant enough to make us sit up and take notice nor are they pleasant enough to make us sit up and take notice so we forget them so we are constantly concerned with pleasant and unpleasant things the third thing that happens automatically the whole thing is this automatic printout which we are subject to over and over again which our whole life revolves around and which we can't stop deliberately next thing that happens is called perception which is labeling we know already what that means labeling now here it's automatic and it's an, let's say it's unpleasant feeling huh? so we say pain now whatever word we like to give it but pain will be the most likely one and then comes the automatic reaction to that namely movement getting away from dukkha dukkha is always and I'll talk about that at another time but just so much here is always hidden from us the real thing through movement either mental or physical So when we have this unpleasant feeling through the sitting position, the thing that happens is that we move instinctively, impulsively. And it's a very important learning situation. And I like to elaborate on that because the sitting position does present 
difficulties for quite a number of people. When it becomes unpleasant and there is this instinctive desire to move, don't do it in the first instance. But do something else. Become aware of this sequence. The touch contact, the unpleasant feeling, the labeling. In other words, you have to go back and see how it happens. And then this desire to move. See it actually happen within you. Because that's the only way we can find out what makes us tick. And then, instead of moving and giving in and doing what comes naturally, not to sit there disliking the pain or trying to prove to oneself or others that one can sit through it. I'm going to do this if it's the last thing I do or with clenched teeth or anything that has any negativity in it. But, taking one's mind of it and putting it back on the meditation subject. That's one way. Anybody can do that once, twice, three times. And what do we learn? We learn that if we don't pay attention to that which irks us, it's gone. Now, obviously, the unpleasant feeling, if we are not really concentrated on the meditation subject, the unpleasant feeling then takes pride of place again and will be the most noticeable again. So our mind is back on it and again we'll try and make it unimportant and go to the meditation subject. When the mind says this is all very interesting and very nice, but I can't sit like that anymore, then move gently, slowly, without disturbing your own mind, without disturbing the mind of the neighbor. And admit to yourself that you've been the victim of your own unpleasant feelings. Now we do this hundreds, thousands, millions of times without being aware of it. Here, we do it again, but we are aware of what we're doing, that's the difference. A very important awareness. There is absolutely no point in sitting with dislike. We have already enough negativity in the mind without adding to it through meditation. On the contrary, meditation is to make us aware, not to make us negative. If we dislike the sitting position because it's painful, it's useless to keep that going. It's much more useful to find this sequence in oneself. Now, another way of dealing with the unpleasant feeling which has arisen is after it's been labeled and the dislike has been seen, which is automatic and instinctive, to look at the unpleasant feeling as if it wasn't one's own. It just is. 
And if you can do that, you can go back to the meditation subject. Now, if it was my own, why would I have an unpleasant one? Why don't I have a pleasant one? If there was really an owner to all this, why doesn't this owner make things the way he wants or she wants them to be? If you can see the feeling as just feeling and nothing to do with you yourself, just feeling, you can go back to the meditation subject. Sitting with dislike is useless. I'm going to repeat that. It's sometimes considered to be a sign of being a meditator, to be able to sit through. I can assure you it isn't. It is sometimes considered to be a sign that one has had, um, has advanced in one's meditation. If one can sit instead of 40 minutes, 45, I can assure you it isn't either. Advancement in meditation I will explain in the most precise detail when we come to that. It's not the sitting position. The sitting position becomes totally immaterial when the mind is concentrated. But first the mind has to get concentrated. And if one is sitting there disliking the unpleasant feeling, the mind is not going to get concentrated. How can it? It can't do two things. It can't dislike and concentrate at the same time. So you have two ways of dealing with that. There is one other way that we can, that one can do, but it is intrinsically connected to not owning the unpleasant feeling. It's by having one's attention on it, not owning it, and seeing it change and also possibly dissolve. It takes away a lot of valuable meditation time. Because most people can't do that very quickly. So one way is recognizing the sequence and then going back to the meditation subject, not paying any more attention to it, as many times and as long as one can. And eventually recognizing one's inability to stay away from it, or realizing it's not mine, it's just a feeling. When that comes about, it's quick and sure, and the mind can get concentrated. There's only one thing that's important in meditation, and that is having no external thoughts, being on the meditation subject, so that eventually we can put this key into the keyhole and open the door. I will explain those phrases that I've just used in greatest of detail when I come to it. I first want to explain our cause and effect and uh, resultant life situation as it is in the worldly way. Now that is how to use our sense contact. Now, on top of that, when you're outside, become aware of this sequence. This is a very important insight method. You can also do it in meditation, but outside will be easier because there you can see. 
And as you see something, recognize the feeling that arises. It may be neutral, then it's very difficult to recognize. But if it's something beautiful, like raindrops on a leaf, or a tiny little frog that's hopping, and you see that, gives a good feeling. And then recognize the perception. The label might be nice, or frog, or rain, any label. And the reaction is, maybe, I like it in the forest. Or maybe the next one is, I should come here more often. Or you've got big raindrops splattering on your face and the feeling is most unpleasant and the perception is too much rain and the mind says, I don't like it here. I'm not going to come here again. Too wet, very unpleasant. It's still all to do with rain. Watch it. Become aware of that four-pointed sequence that goes on in your own mind and in every human being's mind, day in and day out, to which we react, to which we make our life subject. Our life is totally subject to the reaction to the, to the sense contents. Now you may hear something like crickets and the feeling is nice, a good feeling, pleasant feeling. And the mind says crickets and again it says good to be in the forest. I should move from the city. But actually all that has happened is a sound and a good feeling. And maybe one packs one's bags and moves from the city. Become aware of this yourself. Don't believe, don't disbelieve. Notice it. The same applies to thinking. You can think a thought and get a very pleasant feeling. Like, I love the whole world. Well, that's make a pleasant feeling if one believes it. And then there is a perception and it might be the labeling of love and then maybe the reaction. The reaction is something of value. I should practice that more. The thought process also produces a feeling and it goes in the same circular motion because it then produces a reacting thought and the reacting thought can produce a new feeling and again a new perception and a new reacting thought and this goes on and on and on and that's why dependent arising is depicted in a circle if we don't stop it somewhere along the line deliberately we're always going to be the slaves of our sense contacts and when they are not pleasant we'll be unhappy even depressed. It's very important to use this particular teaching outside when you walk around, when you hear, when you see, when you touch, when you taste, when you think. 
You can do it in the meditation. When there is a particular thought process, you can come to the same result. You can see the circular motion of it, because reaction is again a thought. It's most interesting, and it's uh, very illuminating about the human condition, which can only become one relieved from all dukkha when we see this circular motion and no longer go along with it. We don't have to react. Now we're going to do another meditation method where we will learn what it's like not to react. But first, this is important as the information about our senses. Now there's one other important aspect about our senses. Namely, that the eye can't see the flower, nor can the ear hear the abuse. The ear hears sound, and the eye sees shape and color. It's a mind that translates it. So if we don't translate in a very favorable way, we will have unpleasant sensations. If we translate in a good way, we can see things in a totally different way. We can have two people walking through this forest, and one will think, this is lovely, I like it here. And the other will think, this is dreadful, I've got to get back to the city. And both are seeing and hearing exactly the same thing. They're translating differently. It's entirely up to us how we translate. It's strictly a translation system that we have. The eye sees color and shape. The ear hears sound. Now, in meditation, that can be very useful. If there are outside sounds which would be disturbing, one can just go with the vibration. As soon as the mind translates, we are already off the meditation. If, for instance, there's loud rain or there are crickets, and the mind says, loud rain or crickets, then it's disturbed. But sound is vibration, so we can go with that vibration. We don't have to translate. It can be sound only. In meditation, of course, we don't see because of our eyes closed. We don't have to worry about that. But when we do that, sound only, we recognize how we translate. And some people, of course, are more skilled translators than others. It's a matter of practice, how we translate. I want you to practice this outside of the meditation to realize what you see and hear and touch and taste and think is translated by you into another dimension, namely your own reaction. 
And that is strictly an individual reaction and has absolutely no basis in truth. And this is where the meditator has the advantage because the meditator knows already that all those thoughts that arise are just thoughts. They do not have a basis in truth. So try all this out and see what you come up with. Because me telling you this, and I've said this before, that's all very nice and interesting, or maybe not, but it doesn't help you at all, unless you do it. Once you do it, and find out for yourself, you know what happens? You're going to try to be a better translator. And when you become a better translator, you learn not to make yourself unhappy. Because we can translate in any manner or form we wish. Anything is open. And as we do that, when we become skilled and adept at that, why should we make ourselves voluntarily unhappy? We only do that because we're not skilled as yet. So try it out and see what that's like. These are the senses. And we will talk about some aspects of them again because they do appear again in another stage of the meditative path. But this is primarily and importantly the explanation of their function in our lives. Now, if you have any questions, this is the time to ask them. Uh, feeling, you mean? Pleasant or unpleasant feeling? Is that what you mean? Uh, the perception is the labeling. Yes, you can see it as a perception, but it is in the the knowing, the knowing of the feeling. Is that what you're meaning? Okay. All right. Yes, you can, but it's much easier to stay with the pleasant or unpleasant feeling without giving it the name. i tell you why. Once you've given it the name, it has already the connotation of arousing desire or dislike. Without the label, it's much, much easier. So when, for instance, in the sitting position, there is an unpleasant feeling, and if you don't label it with pain, but just have, because that's a labeling, or not even saying unpleasant to yourself, but just feeling. It's much, much easier not to react. The minute you have a label on it, that's where we start already having this inbuilt system of the label meaning something to us. The word pain always connotes in a person's mind, unless they have really trained themselves for years and years on end not to react to labels, it connotes something that isn't desirable. But feeling itself, so what's wrong with feeling? Hmm? 
That's the distraction. The minute you get distracted, that's when the labeling should stop. But when there is a feeling and it's not distracting you, and you can go back to the breath, there's no need to label. In that case, that you, you're all right. When you get distracted, then one should label. That depends how skilled one is. If in an everyday situation somebody levels abuse at you, for instance, which is usually something that people don't react to very well, um, and you can become aware that there's a feeling arising, at that moment, if one then can stop and not come to the conclusion that the person is an, an unmitigated idiot and doesn't know what they're talking about and you can't stand them anyway, but stop at feeling arising and let it pass away again, everything is all right. Yes, the sense contact is the hearing. In that case, it's the hearing. And as you have the hearing and you hear all this, what this person is saying, you're just hearing it. The word perception is used in a particular manner. You can use the word perception in many different ways, but in the Buddhist explanation, it's the translation for the word sanya, which means strictly labeling, not perceiving something. You can use the word perceiving in many different ways in English, but not here. This is a ter terminology which is um, very singularly meant just for the labeling, that's all. So as you become aware, we're using the word aware rather, become aware of the feeling, and the feeling then subsides again, you can just hear the sound and that's it. The sound hearing is hearing. The next step on depend arising after the picture of the house with five windows and one door is the sense contact. Now I've already talked about that this morning, that with the senses comes the sense contact. And the picture that is shown usually, and it always depends on the artist who does it, but there is a traditional way of depicting this. The picture is usually a person who is having a person that's sitting on a bench, a man embracing a woman. Now that's the sense contact of touch, and this is particularly the one I talked about this morning already, except I talked about the unpleasant touch contact, or that's the pleasant one. And of course we have both in this life, there's no doubt about it. Sense contact is the, um, actually the second step that happens with the senses. The first step is that we actually have a sense base which is working. Let's say we have the eye, this eye, and it's all right, it's working. And then we have, so that's a basic foundation, and then we have a sense object. 
that, let's see, this microphone here. And when the base makes contact with the object, sense consciousness arises, which is the seeing. So the contact makes it happen. And we usually call it the sense consciousness. Now this contact which arises then gives rise to all the following steps. And these we have already discussed. The same happens also when an idea arises in the mind and then the thinking starts. So we have always the same kind of sequence. And if we don't recognize it, we are, we'll never be able to put a stop to it. It has to be deliberately put. Now with the sense contact, the next step immediately, which we already discussed also this morning, is feeling. And the feeling is very often depicted with arrows being shot in at a person or into a person's eyes which obviously is unpleasant feeling. And we have the three kinds, which I've already talked about, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And we also have, of course, emotion. Now, here, what we see in this sequence are sensations. The word feeling is the overall name for both, for the physical sensation and for the emotion. And we know both. Now the emotion is very often the reaction, but it can also be the starting point. This sequence can start anywhere, it always goes on and on. Now with the pleasant or unpleasant feeling that we get, we have, and I'll talk about emotion at another point, we then have a moment, the briefest of moments, where we can step out of the continuation of arising, becoming, the will of birth and death. There's a brief moment, namely, a feeling remains feeling. Now, I explained that this morning already. I explain it again. If we get an unpleasant feeling in the sitting position, and the feeling is just a feeling, and we don't do anything about it, that is the moment where we don't have a reaction, and the next step is not being taken. The next step, which is shown in this dependent arising, is craving. What craving means both, wanting to have and wanting to get rid of. So the moment the mind gets unhappy about the unpleasant feeling in the knee or the back or wherever and wants to get rid of it, we have already passed over that brief moment and we are caught again in the wheel of birth and death, in the wanting and the not wanting, in the becoming. We are hoping for better times. We are living again in the next moment. This particular moment is gone by. 
And since we do this all the time, constantly, we're always coming back to our reverse consciousness. We are constantly making karma. And this karma that we're making, although it appears so minute, I mean it is very minute, isn't it, to want to get rid of a knee pain. There's nothing very terrible about that. But it's still negative karma. It still is. And because we're doing that all the time, and even the good karma brings us back, our rebirth consciousness arises constantly every moment we are always back in the same pattern now as I said before rebirth consciousness doesn't have to be next life we're going to forget about that I'm not going to argue about whether there's going to be a next life or not I think it's a total waste of time but that we know that we are going to be reborn tomorrow morning we already talked about that but we're actually reborn every moment because this arises again and again the same thing over and over we're back in the old pattern we don't like it when it's uncomfortable and we like it when it's comfortable and this old pattern that we are in again makes us repeat what we've been repeating for untold lifetimes who knows at least in this lifetime billions of times already how many times can anybody remember how many times we have already repeated wanting the pleasant and wanting to get rid of the unpleasant nobody can remember nobody has any idea we're repeating it constantly this is a moment of departure we could depart from our pattern we could depart from the repetition but since most people don't even know that they could most people certainly wouldn't and those that know that they could conveniently forget about because it's not so unknown the Buddha's teaching has been taught for many many years not only for 2500 years for many many years in the West the dependent arising is nothing unknown but even those that could know would rather forget why? because of instinctive impulsive reaction that we want the pleasant and want to get rid of the unpleasant now this is not to mean that we shouldn't have the pleasant there are no shoulds about this but what it means is that our reactions are bringing us back again and again into that craving that craving that only one way is okay and not the other both ways will have to be okay if we really want to learn what it's like to have peace it has to be okay to have pleasant sensation it has to be okay to have unpleasant sensation if we want peace so both always going to have both there is nobody in the world that only has one the Buddha also had unpleasant sensation so this is the point where we could step out step out of our continual pattern and let go of the craving for this or that but since it is very brief and mindfulness is usually even not strong enough to know that moment 
we usually miss it. With practice, we can become aware of that moment. And eventually, with practice, we can actually also drop the reaction. What comes out of that? Peacefulness, equanimity, ease, whatever is, is. It doesn't have to be changed. The only reason we have unpleasant, unhappiness is because we don't like it the way it is. We want it differently. Now, many, many times we can't do anything about it. So, the unhappiness remains. Then when we do something about it, we're still not satisfied. This um, picture of the unpleasant feeling is to remind us and it's usually an unpleasant feeling which is depicted is to remind us that nobody is immune from them everybody's got them we are never singled out we never have a monopoly most people who have some sort of physical pain think nobody has as much discomfort as they have that's not true. Everybody has usually the same discomfort because it's also a matter of reaction to it. So then comes the craving which is usually depicted with a person sitting at a table which is loaded with food and uh, stuffing it all in from all sides. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be that. This is a symbolism for the craving. But what it shows is that the pleasantness is being craved for. Now craving is our reason for being here. Now obviously it's much better to be a human being than any other um, lower kind of being. And most people even think that that's the only kind of being there is, except that they do know about animals but dismiss them, don't think about that. But there are many other kinds of beings also. And the Buddha talked about 31 different kinds of beings, which are states of consciousness. And ours is the fifth one from the bottom. We're not the crown of creation. We're the fifth one from the bottom, which should help us to realize why the human world looks as it does and take away all the surprises that we usually get when things don't work the way they, we thought they would. Now this craving does not just concern food, of course. It concerns wanting the nice things, disliking or wanting to get rid of those things we don't like. It is, it is actually a word a term, and all these words are sort of terms, it's a term for three kinds of craving, which are the basic cravings of humanity. And to take that in or to forget it is not so useful. The thing is to check it out. And the uh, 
One of them is the craving to be, and the other one is the craving not to be. Now they're both the same thing actually. They're the two sides of the same coin. We want to be here most of the time, except sometimes when things go so wrong that we figure, let let me see, they should see how they get along without me. And uh, sometimes uh, the kind of suicide ideas. But it's always the same thing because it's always me. It's always concerning me. So it's either craving to be or craving not to be, and most of the time we're concerned with craving to be. Now this craving to be, is actually the biggest problem because it's not possible to actually fulfill that wish. Nobody is forever. So this craving to be is always fraught with fear. And fear is a human condition because we know, all of us know, whether we admit it or not that we do know, that this craving to be is never going to be fulfilled because one of these days we're not going to be here. And the other one is the craving for sensual gratification, in other words, to get the pleasant sense contact. And that is a human condition. We do have other options. And we do have other capacities. But we've got to go beyond senses and rationality, in other words, thinking. We've got to go beyond those two. And when we go beyond that, those two, and get into what I like to call the third dimension, we can see that those first two are really on a level which does not behoove a human being to pursue one for life. They are not um, exalted enough to give us ever satisfaction. And because this particular dependerizing, which I'm explaining to you, and I hope I'm explaining it well enough so that you do get the sense of it, is the worldly dependerizing. It it, uh, depicts only the worldly aspects of everything. When we finish with that, and we're almost finished, we, I will start explaining the transcendental dependent which goes from the worldly aspect to the transcendence of that. And the interesting aspect of this is also that the worldly dependent is always depicted in a circle. It goes around and around and around because we're doing the same thing over and over. Whereas transcendental dependarizing is linear. It goes from where we are to where we can be. The uh, craving aspect, which is shown with this person eating loads and loads of food, means that we have overstepped the moment where we can get out. Where we can get out at least for that particular moment out of any discomfort. Because the discomfort doesn't arise out of the unpleasant feeling. The discomfort arises out of the reaction. Unpleasant feelings are just unpleasant feelings. That's all they are. And everybody knows them. 
and they can be sensation or feeling but at this point we are actually concerned with the sensation but in the moment we have reaction that's when it becomes really unpleasant and when the reaction of course is this one because there is no other it is a craving to have or craving to get rid of then we are back into the old pattern and the renewal of the same consciousness that we said before and the same consciousness that we said before is the human consciousness so it's all right isn't it for one reason and one side one can say it's all right this human consciousness but on the other side it's not all right because it doesn't make us happy so we're really caught in a bind we'd like to have it just the way it is in the world but we'd like to be happy with it and nobody can do it so here is the problem in a nutshell within the worldly conditions it's impossible to find fulfillment and steady happiness momentary joy yes why not but not steady happiness and yet most people continue to want it that way and it just isn't there so you at least you can see the problem in a nutshell whether we're going to get out of this problem in the course of this course i don't know but at least i shall explain what the buddha had to say about it and how to go about it how to do it now having overstepped that moment that single moment of non reaction and gone back into our old reaction of craving we now get to the next point and that's clinging now clinging is depicted mostly by a person sitting in a fruit tree up on the tree and having at the bottom many baskets full with fruit and throwing down more fruit not ever getting enough clinging to what there is now the the craving that arises the wanting the wanting to have or the wanting to get rid of of course makes us get stuck on that what we like and on that what we don't like we cling to it we've got an idea we've got an opinion we've got an way of life we've got figured out and that's the way it should be otherwise we wouldn't crave so now having craved whatever it is that we wanted now we cling to that and we want it again we've passed the point of departure and clinging is the automatic result of craving the whole thing shows cause and effect is automatic resultant with one point where we have a chance to get out of course we'll have one other chance to get out and that's the one we're going to find out in the transcendental dependent arising and that is the elimination of the very first step the elimination of ignorance which is insight in pali vipassana vipassana means nothing else except insight it's not a method it's what we're supposed to be getting one day insight some people always call methods by that name but that's not the way it is it's a word for insight and if we get that of course then the first step of getting into this uh, circle is eliminated 
for once being in it, we only have that one point where we can get out. And that's between feeling and craving. So now, automatically clinging. Doing it again. We're in the same boat again. We've again missed it. And with that, with that clinging, there is the next step, which is becoming, which we can look at, it's usually shown as a pregnant woman. There is the becoming again. There is the rebirth consciousness growing again in the womb as a new person. But we can use it for this life. We are clinging to our own ideas, to our own wishes. We're clinging to everything that we are actually have done so many times and are doing over and over again, thinking about this, planning that, hoping for this, remembering that. It's all the same thing over and over again. And by clinging to all that, we are becoming again with the reverse consciousness, which is from moment to moment, it's all the same thing over again. There's this human being again with the same human consciousness. Now you will notice that this is our human consciousness. It's not in any manner or form a low consciousness or blameworthy consciousness or to be despised. It is human consciousness. That's the way it is. The only problem, as I said before, is does it make us happy? And that we've got to figure out ourselves. So then we have this baby growing in the womb, which is a picture of it, which is our becoming again, same thing again, a human being. And with that, with that becoming, usually the picture, next picture is one of birth, baby being born, and the next picture, death. Because what is born has to die. There's no way out. And most people think that's a tragedy. Well, that, if you look at it a little bit objectively, in a setting such as this, one must admit that that's absurd, isn't it? Since everything that gets born has to die, why is that a tragedy? How can it possibly be a tragedy? How can the birth be something wonderful and the death is something terrible? And yet the two always belong together. It's again our duality thinking. I like the pleasant, I don't want the unpleasant. I like the birth, but I don't like the death. We don't like the laws of nature. We want to change nature, we want to be in charge of it. We want to fix it up so that it's the way we think it should be. If we did, we would probably make a terrible mess of it. Wherever we've tried, we've managed to make a mess of it. So we would make a mess of this one also. But wherever there's birth, there's death. It's very often depicted with an old man carrying a bundle on his back out of which bones are sticking out. He's taking these bones for burial, which was a passion in those days. And then, underneath all the whole thing, it usually says, and this is how this whole mass of suffering arises. Out of this whole continuation of repetition of wanting and not wanting, the whole mass of our suffering arises. Now the word suffering has a connotation of something really big. 
If when we say I am suffering, it means I'm really having a dreadful time. But that's not meant here. The word dukkha in Pali translates, as I've said before, as unsatisfactoriness. And that's all that's necessary. It's not satisfactory. It's not totally fulfilling. And one of the mistakes that is often made, very often, by people who are extremely intelligent is this, <coughs> that we know we're not totally satisfied. We know there's some emptiness somewhere, there's something, some niggling feeling inside that says there must be something more. It can't just be the car and the refrigerator and the children and the partner and the house and the stairboard. It can't be just that. There must be something more. So one looks for that something more, which is fine. So far, so good. But one is often not willing to give up the something less. Now that doesn't mean that one's got to throw one's belongings away. But the, the thing that is important is to recognize the priority. In order to get to something more, which is certainly available, the priorities have to be changed. And this is very often where it breaks down. The priorities stay with that which one had anyway, the something less. And the something more is supposed to be added on, but it doesn't work. It's never worked. There has to be a shift. And that shift is only is something that only oneself can make out of the recognition what that something more really is. Now this understanding of the unsatisfactoriness of the human condition on a worldly level, that is the possibly the main aspect of this teaching. Is it difficult to hear? So what we're looking at in this sequence, which is called in its full name, the 12-point dependent origination. A nice long name. You can call it the 12-point dependent arising. You can call it dependent arising. You can also learn what is called in Pali, it's called the Paticca Samuppada. And this one, the, um, the worldly one, Lokya Paticca Samuppada, but you don't have to remember foreign words. The main thing to remember is that in this human condition, because we think we own the feelings, they're ours, and because we don't want them the way they are, either to get rid of them or to keep those that we like, we are on a level of consciousness where satisfaction cannot be obtained. 
only momentarily. And then when we don't obtain it, we often wonder why, or we blame somebody else, or we think that somebody must have done something to us, or that we aren't clever enough and we get an inferiority complex, or if things seem to be working for a while, we get a superiority complex. The whole thing is being looked at from the wrong standpoint. The only thing to do is to look at this soft point of tender origination, put oneself in the middle of it, and look at it objectively, and see how it works for everybody. The picture itself, which some of you may have seen, there used to be one around here somewhere, but I can't find it anymore, um, is quite interesting. And uh, as I mentioned, the original one, the very first one, the Buddha himself drew in the sand, so the tradition says. And then later on it was more and more elaborated upon. So, so now we have one which is really very fine in all details and beautifully done. And we see in it three circles. There's a small one in the middle, very small one. And in that one in the middle, there are three animals. A snake, a pig, and a cock. And they themselves build a, make a circle because they bite each other's tail. And quite obviously, the snake is sick because she's got poison fangs. And the cock, he is greed. He's got a whole barnyard full of ladies there. And the pig is delusion because it throws dirt over its face and then it can't see. So the symbolism for those three animals and they bite each other's tail so they build a circle again because one, having one, one has the other two. And the basic one, the underlying problem why all this stuff arises which is called ignorance, if you remember, is actually this delusion, which is exactly the same thing. Ignorance and delusion are just two words for the same thing. The delusion, which means that we think of ourselves as somebody, and very often as somebody special. We have an idea that there's somebody there. And that is how the whole mass of unsatisfactoriness arises. Now with that little circle, there comes the next one, a bigger one, which is usually divided into six parts. And these six parts are the six realms of consciousness. In the, the 30, the, they are the 31, within those six realms of consciousness are the 31 levels of being. So there's one, the lowest, which is called the hell realm, and I don't think that we need to think about the hell realm as being down there. I think we can have the hell realm right in here. And all we have to do is read contemporary history, very contemporary history, and we know all about hell realms. It's a level of consciousness. 
of course it's depicted with fire and uh, and torture and all the rest of it on this on this drawing then comes the then what we usually find as a next one we see what are called the uh, hungry ghosts and uh, they're depicted like little stick men that have tiny little throats and tiny little mouths and huge bellies and they can't ever get full because they have huge bellies that need to be filled but their mouths and their throats are so tiny they can't put very much in so it's their hungry ghosts that means their greed has been so much that they never got enough and now they are impossible to satisfy it's a level of consciousness and then we have the asuras which are so to say the um, titans they're fighting all the time they're constantly fighting and they're very often depicted black and white the good ones the bad ones and they're constantly fighting with each other so these are also levels of consciousness then we have animals we've all seen those we know all about them and uh, then the human level and that's depicted with people going about their business looking after children uh, planting rice in the fields and uh, shooting each other all sorts of things that people do and then when we have the higher level of consciousness that's usually depicted in just one picture although there are 26 different realms in this higher consciousness according to what the Buddha said it's always one picture for those higher realms and it's supposed to depict paradise well whatever anybody thinks paradise looks like I like to make a picture for yourself what paradise looks like that's all right but the main thing is what does paradise feel like and so it is another level of consciousness and because it exists that level of consciousness and everybody knows it exists nobody has any doubt that it exists it is possible to have that level of consciousness and it's not something where we get uh, carted away carted off to after death that's another myth paradise is a level of consciousness in the Buddhist terminology is called the Deva realm all these are different realms which on a primitive level we can imagine that they are actually existing here and there up and down or somewhere but on a level of an intelligence we can be quite sure that we have experienced probably all those levels at one time or another in this lifetime if we just think back for a moment there have been moments where that all of that has has been in our consciousness and since our consciousness is our life it also shows us that it's time to make a choice and if we make a choice then we know what to do so if we make a wise choice we'll have the necessary instructions by the Buddha how to get there 
how to have that level of consciousness. This worldly dependent arising is the basis and the foundation for the transcendental dependent arising. And that I will talk about as the days go by. It contains everything we need to know for the practice and it contains all the instructions and all the things that are necessary to understand. It is very often and practically always the case in the Buddha's discourses that he starts with telling us where we're at, gives us a step-by-step instruction how to continue the growth process and tells us where we can get to. The growth process must not be misunderstood that we need to get something. What we need to do is let go. I'm going to probably say that every day until you get so tired of it that you'll actually do it. Everything we carry around with us, every bit, is a burden. Everything. Whatever it may be, the more we can shed it, the easier it is. The easier our life is, the easier it is to have a peaceful mind which then can meditate. Now we've come to the end of this uh, broadly dependent arising and if you have any questions, this is the time for them. Uh-huh. What do I do again? Okay. All right. Starts out with ignorance. Goes to karma formation. Because we are ignorant and think we're me, we're making karma good and bad. Rebirth consciousness, from rebirth consciousness, mind and body, from mind and body, the senses, five senses plus thought, which means six senses. From the senses comes sense contact, from sense contact comes the feeling, from feeling comes unfortunately craving, from craving comes clinging, from clinging comes the coming, the coming means birth and death. Anything else? Buddha said if one wants to be, be wise, one has to ask a lot of questions. So questions is a sign of wanting to be wise or even is a sign of wisdom. So anything else that is unclear or... What was the last sentence? Yes. Okay. Um, the, you see, we all have a very short life. Even though we might think it's going on forever, 
and particularly when it isn't running very well, one thinks it's terribly long. But when one comes to the end of it and looks back, it's very short. So the time element, which I've already explained, is one where we only have actually, let's say, this one day. Now, if we use that one day in the right way, <clears throat> have the priorities right, then it is everything that we do and everything that we experience is an invitation, a challenge to practice purification. Everything, no matter what it is. If it's an unpleasant uh, encounter, that's a challenge to practice. A challenge to practice just feeling and not reaction. Of course, it doesn't always work. That's not the point, whether it works or not. But most people use their time to avoid as much unpleasantness as they, as they can possibly get away with. And some people are in that way have better karma, can get away with avoiding a lot. Other people don't have that and have to get in with a lot. So most people try to avoid as much unpleasantness as they can possibly manage and get as much pleasantness as they can possibly manage. Well, that's not practice. That's an escape mechanism. Because in that pleasantness, we want to repeat the pleasantness. And if we try to avoid it, and are very happy, very lucky in avoiding a lot of unpleasantness, we don't ever know what we're going to do next time the unpleasantness arises, how we're going to react. So that doesn't give us a challenge to practice. Now, that doesn't mean we should search for unpleasantness. Please don't misunderstand that. We, most people don't have to search for it. They've got plenty all around them. But uh, uh, trying to avoid it is wrong, and trying to get as much pleasantness as possible is also wrong, because we do have both available. And to look at our life as an adult education class is about the only way we can really look at it. The adult education class where there are exams at any time, nobody ever tells us when they're coming. And nobody is kind enough to tell us the topic either. They just come. And what happens with us if we are not prepared for this exam, well, what we would do is flunk it, of course. So then what happens? We get the same exam again. And if we don't get it this life, we get it again and again and again. But we don't worry about this because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. If it's happening now, we're getting the same exam twice, three times, then a little bell should ring or something should happen where one sees it and says, I've had that exam before and I've flunked it. How come I'm flunking it again? Didn't I learn anything in the meantime? And when we see that, then we can do something. So the use of all the challenges in everyday life for practice, that is one way. And actually meditating in one's everyday life, sure, that's another, another thing we need to do. And that does help, help us. But it's not all of it. It's not everything. It's only one part of it.